There's a group of people associated with our profession who we've never discussed on this podcast, which is weird because we've talked about a lot of people from a lot of backgrounds. But this group is probably the most important. They're the ones who support us, listen to us whine, put up with our shit, believe in us, see us at our worst and help us to be our best. They're the ones who love us. No, I'm not talking about your parents, although I've just realized that we should do an episode with the parents of it. But for this one, I'm talking about, and we are talking to, our life partners. Our husbands, or wives, or girlfriends, or de facto husbands, or significant others, or better halves, or whatever you want to call them. All the good stuff we talk about on this podcast, and all of the bad stuff, they are the ones, I believe, that are affected most by it. And so far, I've ignored them. Well, this changes today. Regina Carey is a leadership and personal coach and public speaker who educates and empowers those who are stuck, struggling, and ready for positive change. She has a background in teaching and especially teaching those with disabilities. And increasingly, a large part of her work is to help drive change within the veterinary and human healthcare professions through her programs and coaching. You can find her at all of the links in the show description. But for selfish purposes, for the first half of this episode, she's someone who's married to a vet and therefore by default married to the vet profession. And in this conversation, we ask, what's that like? What do the significant others of veterinarians want us to know? Regina gives us their solution to making space in a relationship for two careers, especially when one of the careers can be particularly time and commitment hungry. But of course, I had to also utilize Regina's coaching brain. We take on topics like invisible disabilities, those non-obvious things that get in the way of us becoming the best version of ourselves. My favorite one being competitiveness. Regina also discusses how we hobble ourselves with the language that we use, why clients are tougher on us than in other healthcare professions, what to do about it, and much, much more. But first, we start with a love story. But before we jump in, a big theme in this conversation is about support, giving it and getting it. And I would love to tell you about a new way that the Vet Vault can support you. You already know about our clinical podcast that keeps you up to date with your knowledge and skills, which by the way is now race approved. If you haven't heard of it, go check it out at vvn.supercast.com. But here's the thing, despite the fact that I personally make all of these episodes, which means that I am more up to date with my clinical knowledge than I've ever been, I still have cases that stump me. Cases where I need just a little bit of wisdom from someone smarter than me, or some reassurance that my thinking is on the right track, or another input to help me get unstuck with my case. So, I've made exactly that. We now have, in the Vet Vault Network, a space where you can ask our team of specialists your stickiest, trickiest case questions, and get support from some of the most experienced specialist minds available. Our app lets you upload files and images and videos, and you can even jump on a live chat if the case requires it. It's a paid space so that our specialists get compensated for the time, so no more feeling guilty about asking for free advice. But we've tried to keep it as affordable as possible to make it widely accessible at around $15 a month, which lets you ask as many questions as you want. Check out the details and the T's and C's by clicking the link for this in the episode show description and go give it a try. Okay, let's jump in with Regina Carey. Welcome to the Vet Vault and thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat to us. It is so cool to be here. It's so cool to be here on a Thursday and talk to you on a Friday. Yeah, I know. Time travel. <laughs> yes, 
Yes. So we usually kick this off with a question that often brings out some interesting stories. So I, I once saw a saying on the side of a building that said, bad decisions lead to good stories. And I, I always, I'm always curious, do my guests agree? And if so, do you have any examples that will demonstrate, corroborate or refute that statement? You know what is interesting, Hugh, is when I was thinking about some of the questions that you posed, I I talked a lot to my husband about it. And we, here's the thing, in my work that I do, I have no judgment on decisions, on life. There's not a good, bad, right, wrong. But yep. you know what, Hugh? I'm sure there have been some really awful things in my teenage years, but in most of my adult life has been with my husband. We we met when we were 15 and 16. And wow. we were talking about the decision that we made in this transition between internship and residency. Now just stick with me on this. We mm-hmm. threw all of our eggs into the basket of we're going back to Wisconsin. We can't wait to get back to Wisconsin. We had our children's schools set up for when we came back the following year. I took a sabbatical from my work. We had our faith community, our banking accounts, everything. We put all of our eggs into that basket knowing for sure he would get placed back in Wisconsin after our internship at Michigan State. That was a Mm -hmm. poor decision. Because as you may know or have experienced, it's all unpredictable. I have this written up behind. It's unpredictable. And it threw us into this loop of disappointment and regret and sadness that hung over us for years. It took a really long time to embrace where we are now and have been for 23 years. Mm -hmm. Because of that one decision that we made, having faith or, you know, deciding to just keep our life there because we were going back to it. And that blew up. It didn't really happen. And the truth is, it's a great story. You know, it's a love story. It's a family story. And and it had a, it's a roller coaster story. But here we are still in Michigan after 23 years. I never would have put myself here. I am a sunshine, ocean, warm weather. And you might say, well, that's not Wisconsin. (laughs) True. But I never thought I'd end up here. And here I am. So the decision wasn't bad, but it was the, I want to make sure I understand this correctly. It was the expectation around what the repercussions of the decision will look like. And then the stubborn lack of flexibility when that expectation wasn't met. Correct. We do that, don't we? Because every every step along the way, we discussed possible outcomes. But this one, we simply chose to ignore. So mm-hmm. I want to get us all in the picture of who you are and who you guys are as a unit and as a family. You said it was a love story. Start with a love story. Tell us a love story, and then we'll mm. go through the career things. Because you're, you're, we're talking about this, just to give clarity, we're talking about this as a partner, as a wife, as a support structure to a veterinarian. Your husband is a vet. We'll come to the ins and outs of who he is and what he does. But let's start with a love story. 
You know, and in, in the, the ironic part, and I think I can use irony correctly here, is that we met in Michigan, and we were both camp counselors, and <laughs> well. 15 and 16, 15 and yeah, <laughs> and I cannot stand the outdoors. I don't camp. <laughs> I never went to this camp, but I was going to be a teacher, and I really wanted to go and be a counselor for a summer, and lo and behold... I met my husband, and he was doing lifeguard duty. And as I approached the beach to, to, to do my orientation as a counselor, he looked at me and he said, I have to go do the boat test. Would you hold my class ring? You know, class rings were a big thing back in the, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure. I didn't know him, you know. And when I took it, he said, you know what this means, don't you? And I said, no. He said, we're engaged. And we kind of <laughs> laughed it off. Well, we continued to be pen pals. He moved away right after that camp experience from Ohio to the East Coast, to Boston. And we were pen pals. And I went and visited him at Duke, where I might add he was going to become an orthopedic surgeon. I have no uh, hard feelings about that, right? Um, but... <laughs> I went down to visit him at Duke for spring break, and we had only ever been pen pals. And the minute we saw each other, he got down on his knee and proposed. So we were engaged before we ever dated, and we've been together ever since. And so 33 years later, here we are. That's very sweet. Whatever happened to what happens at camp stays at camp. The cool thing is, each one of our children, we have three of them. I have a child for every one of his degrees. Uh, All of our children have gone to that same camp. Oh, no worries. That's so cool. So the whole camp thing is is so foreign to me. I'm familiar with camp from all the movies I've seen about camp happening in the U.S., but it looks like such a cool thing. (laughs) Yeah. it's and, And what was beautiful about that is that we are an interracial couple. And so when you are in a camp environment, and it was an international camp, it's a YMCA camp, there were people from all over the world, and we were immersed. I mean, I was small town Ohio. I had one minority student in the entire high school in my town. And going to camp and and being immersed, really marinating in culture and diversity was such a beautiful way to live. Everybody was amazing. You know, there was, there was, you didn't see, you didn't see all the differences. You just were in it together. And it was such a loving experience. And to be able to meet my husband in that atmosphere was really a blessing. That's a very nice love story. Thank you. So, Let's fast forward. So he, mm-hmm. when you met, he was a lifeguard. So he was still in school, in high school. Oh, yes. And then, it, am I right? Mm-hmm. Or was he already out of school? Okay. So no. you guys were kids when you met. Mm-hmm. And then you, were you guys together as a couple or married or anything when he studied, when he went to vet school? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. So you went through the whole vet school experience. The Married with a child. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. We were non. We were very non-traditional, and when we went to, you know, we moved. When he got into vet school, it was quite harsh because we moved from North Carolina to Wisconsin, and at any given point, they're ninety degrees difference in temperature. Hmm. And as I might have mentioned earlier, I'm a warm weather girl, 
and going to Wisconsin was, these are sub-zero temperatures we're talking about. But Madison, Wisconsin is beautiful, and I fell in love with the state, and I knew we were going to be there for four years. I went with my husband to orientation, and one of the first things that they said out loud after welcome is if you are starting vet school married, the majority of you will graduate divorced. Whoa. And I'm sitting there with That's... my newborn next to my husband. I know. And I looked at him and I said, challenge accepted. And we did, I mean, vet school was amazing and it was a little bit stressful, but it was easily the most beautiful, simple time in our lives together. It was, it was easy. I, I want to come back to how it was easy for you guys, but that statement of when, if you start this marriage, you're going to be re- end up divorced. That yes. it's such an it epitomizes the problem that I see with so much of the culture around a profession that starts at vet school. And I, I hope it's changing. I think it's changing, but that's ex- that says it. It sums it up in one sentence to say this career that you are signing up for, you will have to sacrifice everything for it. Everything. Yeah. Sacrifice your relationships. And, if you're not, it's the expectation from literally from day one. And I want to almost swear about it because how messed up is that? So messed up. And, you know, luckily I'm somebody who you tell me I can't do something and I'll prove you wrong. So here we yeah. are. I will tell you, I will tell you, I, the determination, first of all, I knew that if, if we were going to make it, I had to be a part of it. And they had a wonderful, I don't know how many vet schools have this, but they had something called the auxiliary group. And the auxiliary group was made up of partners, spouses, significant others who came together and helped one another. We had potlucks. We had meetings. We did picnics together. Like we created that social structure and relied on one another and created friendships, you know, and that was really scary because... This really started, you know, the the nomadic <laughs> portion of our lives where we were moving all the time and you didn't really want to get close to mm-hmm. people because you knew you were going to be leaving again. But that's how I, I got involved right out of the gate. But, you know, vet school started at eight o'clock in the morning, ended at five o'clock. We had our whole system. I'd drop our daughter off with him and he would ride with her on his back in a backpack on his way home on the bus and I would be on campus working so our schedules danced so before we dig into all of those things and what it meant and how you took those lessons through the rest of your relationship together in his career let's just put us in the picture of his career journey so it was veteran degree and then did he work as a vet or went straight to the next degree or what does it look like and and all the way to where we are now just to let us understand what he does we started with the DVM and mm-hmm. then he decided, you know, and, and let me say, going into this, I signed up for four years of vet school and thought that we were going to go right out into career and that shifted. So we have internship and that threw us out of Wisconsin into Michigan and then okay. residency, which kept us right here where we are still. And then okay. PhD. So okay. he's got his DVM PhD and then that, that DIMVAC, right? <laughs> Diplomat, diplomat of 
internal medicine. So he's a, a medicine specialist. Yes, internal medicine. Small animal internal medicine, yeah. And still associated with the university? Does he lecture students or does he work in private practice or what does he do for a, for, for a job? <laughs> what does he do for a job? He works for the university, he's faculty, and he does mm-hmm. all of the things, research and teaching and clinics, and he still works too much in my opinion. But that's a conversation <laughs> for another time. <laughs> yes. So, Regina, the, I think the reason I wanted to chat to you today is, is a couple of main angles that I had on this conversation. And the one is probably what do the significant others of veterinarians want to know? What do they want from us and how do we give that? But then also what are the things that we should ask for and how to ask nicely? But... Before we jump into that, there's, there's something that often comes up, and I've seen conversations around this a lot, is you married to a vet, you've got kids, three kids now, and you're a, you're a supportive partner of a veterinarian, but you're also no slouch yourself. You have a career that you clearly care about. And the question is often, how do you make space in a relationship, especially with kids, for two careers? Because often there are periods where one has to take preference over the other. How did you guys negotiate that? And I'll add that, keeping in mind that, that you guys are, are the more traditional, older school dynamic of male partner is the vet and there's the wife who's not the vet. But these days it's literally mostly the opposite. Absolutely, right. So, you know, I understand that we are the exception. My husband was one of seven males in his class and it was 83% female. And that in, in and of itself in a in a heterosexual relationship having my husband go into an 83% nobody wants their husband to go into an 83% female room that was a that was a challenge right out of the gate you know here i'm coming right off of, of having a baby so so i taught my my background is in special education and i was teaching in north carolina and i was i was fortunate enough then to get my master's degree right before we left. So I got my master's degree in special education and went, took that right into Wisconsin and worked as a specialist for the university there, for the athletic department. And what I was able to do, I mean, the gift of having that degree allowed me to shapeshift wherever we went. I worked for universities. I've always been affiliated with universities at some level. I do not have my PhD, nor will I ever, (laughs) but I always affiliated with the university to do consulting work, teaching, working with students, working with other educators. And so from the time we left and, and started vet school, so this is 27 years ago. My oldest is almost 27. I have pretty much been working out of my home. And really, Hugh, that has been one of the bigger challenges because my stuff is everywhere. But I'm like the I'm like the, you know, the the crab with the shell. Like I take it I take it wherever we go. And I've taught and I've done consulting work and I've done private coaching. And what I realized just this past year is that I this thread that has run through my career has always been veterinary medicine. And right now, I, I have my own company, which is called Carry On, and I work to keep strong people strong. 
I work with people with invisible disabilities, and I help so many of the human and animal medicine people that I support have got learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder, chronic health issues, anxiety, depression, and we know the pandemic really leveled that stuff right up. And so one in four, Hugh, one in four, and I believe it's actually more, have some invisible disability. So that's the work I do. And it's flexible. That really has helped us do this dance of him Mm. being gone and me being able to do my work from anywhere. The the vet stuff, and especially when you start talking internships and residencies and that, it can be quite, I don't want to say selfish, but it's a demanding pursuit that requires some degree of selfishness with your time. Did you ever feel like that, that your career was playing second fiddle to the vet thing? Is that an issue? And I ask this because I, I see this and what typically happens, and I'm married to a vet as well, by the way. Uh, it's often the vet component because it is the classic male-female mom-dad dynamic where the vet career starts playing second fiddle to the engineer or the whatever dad does. Did you feel that way or, or not really? Was your flexibility your solution for it? <laughs> I think my flexibility has always been my superpower. And I know, and my husband would support me in saying this, that I kept us going. My work, my determination, my energy and enthusiasm, the ability to always be able to find work and make it work because I had mouths to feed. You know, we, we were, during vet school, Hugh, we were actually on welfare for a while. The funny thing is I didn't even realize it. I thought I thought mm-hmm. this program was so great. Oh, we get cereal and milk and coupons for food and I had I wasn't that's not how I was, you know, brought up. I had no idea. And uh the first time I had to go into a, a visit to the office to make sure I was legit, I looked around the waiting room and realized, "Oh my gosh, I'm on welfare." But mm-hmm. I have always been grateful that my work has been what it is. And the biggest discussion that we've had around our careers happened just during the pandemic. And because my husband has all those letters behind his name, I have been afraid to make more money than he makes. Now, he's in academia, and I don't know about you and where you are, but here, the mantra for academia is do more with less. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he said to me, I am so sorry that you have felt like this all these years. You go out, make as much money as you can. He told me, ask for whatever you want and retire me. You know, he said those letters behind my name put me into a very specific lane in which I move and work. And the letters behind your name open up doors that are so abundant and expansive. Mm. The what you said there about academia—that certainly is my impression that that is global. And academia is not gonna—it's not where you go to earn the big bucks, for sure. So um, hopefully, it shouldn't be too much of a challenge to out earn him. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, right. That's right. I'm I'm very curious about your work 
And it's interesting how you said that that thread of veterinary science has actually gone all throughout your life and your career. So what did you do before? Because you do you do the vet support stuff and the vet coaching now. But who did you serve? Who were your clients before the vet thing became an actual job thing? Because it was always your work, but it wasn't necessarily your job. <laughs> Nobody paid you for doing it. <laughs> correct, correct. So I, I did teach. I had, I in at least in the States here, the the career lifeline of a special ed teacher is three and a half years. So I taught students. I taught elementary and middle school for three and a half years, and I had the opportunity to get my master's. So once in my master's work, I was doing a lot. Now, I'm going to date myself and say... When I was pregnant with my first child, this is right before we went to vet school, the internet was just coming out. So you think about the amazing amount of information that we have learned in my professional life. It, it's, it blows my mind. I mean, I'm amazed at myself at how much I've taught myself and how much I've had to learn over the course of the 30 years. But the internet was just coming out. I was I was doing assistive technology. I was teaching teachers and then working with students in Wisconsin who were athletes with invisible disabilities and still involved in the vet community and, and supporting students however I could, their families and whatnot. And then when we came to Michigan State, I immediately got involved at, uh, at the university level to work with students and staff here at Michigan State University, uh, mm-hmm. those who have disabilities. And I did that work for a very long time. And then I, that's when I began taking on coaching clients. And okay. it's been, gosh, I mean, it's been a very long career, but always working with people who are in it's sort of the next phase living, like the transition, transitioning from jobs to empty nest syndrome to, you know, just wanting. I work with a lot of women going through divorce, too. So then what was the trigger? Because it sounds like you've always been involved in teaching. Was there a turning point where you went, actually, I'm going to focus on supporting veterinarians as a big part of my role? What made that tick right. for you to say, well, this is, I've been doing it all my life anyway, let me make this a thing. I am, so we've been here 23 years. I've been asked every year by people at Michigan State to come in and be a part of orientation, to talk to the students. I work with students who are pre-vet, who are, I don't know if they have vet word bound, but these are students who don't have the typical exposure to veterinary medicine growing up. And I I just got off teaching a workshop about imposter phenomenon with them. But I had a student who would actually watch the children while she was going through vet school here in Michigan and became part of our family, really. And then when she graduated and got into practice, she hired me to help coach her through buying a practice. And once she was in that practice, she hired me to come and talk to her team and then when she was going through a corporate buyout just recently, she asked me to come again and support her through that transitional period. And what I realized is I, I have these people cradle to grave. I'm watching them go through the, these pivotal parts of their lives. 
and we build trust and relationship and they see the impact that somebody believing in them, somebody really understanding where they're coming from, they appreciate having someone like that in their corner. And I said, this, this is becoming a pattern. The students are graduating and then they're hiring me to work with them and their teams because they saw how it supported them during their vet school time. And then your experience in the teaching people with disabilities or what you call invisible disabilities, th- does that play into your supporting the vet's role? Like, is, is that a big part of it? Do you mostly coach people who struggle with some of these things or, or not necessarily? I do with and without, but I will <laughs> tell you that I see many veterinary nursing students and vet med students and human medicine students who have an invisible disability that gets in the way, that makes them question themselves during this rigorous period of their education. And I also teach faculty how to work with students who think differently. We need people who think differently in veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. There are different ways to do things, other ways to approach the same problem. And the work is evolving. Telehealth, you know, more people have animals. Look at the look at the the influx of pet owners during the pandemic. So we've got to know that there are students and practitioners who have special gifts that enhance the work they do and sometimes gets in the way of interpersonal relationships, communication styles, definitely management styles. And that's a that's a bulk of the the work that I do right now, teaching people how to how to have interactions. So common examples because I like that you initially we talked about invisible disabilities but then your reframe of saying different way of thinking rather than a disability it's just a different way of thinking. Yes. What are the most com- common things that you work with that you find specifically in the vet space? Do we have a trend where we say, well, number one, two, three of, of different ways of thinking that people struggle with? Mm. I, think that, I think that there is still the, that the competition that students experience in vet school carries into the work. And it's, it can be very competitive. Therefore, many people, especially I, I work a lot with female-owned clinics, which are usually female-staffed clinics, and many of them work in silos. They're afraid to ask for help. Nobody wants to look weak. Everybody thinks their answer is the right answer, and there tends to be drama. And the thing about this population, this industry, is that you all are extremely tuned in to behavior, to emotion. You are sensors of the world. And so when all of that is taking place and communication is not happening, it becomes, um, it becomes like a volcano and mm-hmm. it, it festers. And so we get people to talk, to communicate, to figure out what's important to them and to start to treat one another as if we're all going through something. We're all struggling. We all have our challenges. And learning, teaching people how to communicate effectively instead of beating around the bush 
trying to read each other's minds. And I think, I think one mm. of the downfalls is that people do not know how to ask for help. I like this a lot. I love that you call competitiveness a, a stumbling block, one of the things that blocks us. Because we've, I feel like, as because again, you get into vet school by being competitive to some degree. If not with others in your class, at least with yourself. You don't get those marks to get in there without some degree of competitiveness. So we often see it as a strength. If not a strength, it's at least a prerequisite that there's got to be some degree of competitiveness. And you saying, no, it's not. It's a stumbling block. It's something that, that it's an invisible disability. So how, how do we deal with that? How, how, do you, how do you coach people through that? Well, it has to start with who's ever in charge. You know, I, I only work with practices where leadership is willing to take part in the work as well. And I'm amazed at the amount of negative self-talk that practitioners still have about themselves. This one that I'm working has multiple degrees, even an MBA on top of all of the veterinary work, and yet still doubts the steps that she takes in her business with her people, worries about what other people think. And so we, I tear apart all of that. We, we start to tear apart all of the, the language and reframe it. And I, you know what, I teach a lot of language skills, dropping all of the weak ums and uhs and just and I'm sorry. There's so much... <laughs> There's so much language that gets in the way of what we're trying to say, of the work that we're trying to do. And even teaching people how to, to teach others how to treat them. I have never seen an industry that receives so much abuse from its clients. This, this, is, not, this, is, this is an exception in vet med. And I think it has a lot to do with the burnout, with the suicide rate, with the mental exhaustion, with quitting the profession mm. because of the yeah. abuse. And I, I teach clinic owners that they do not have to take that. They can fire clients. They can teach their front desk staff how to interact with clients who come in hot. And it really, I believe it boils down to being open, to communicating, and to pausing, slowing down long enough to take care of ourselves between the transitions of seeing the next client and the next client and the next patient and the next patient. We've got to slow down. I teach people to slow down, take a breath, do some energetic cutting and rejuvenate before they go in. And I know that's one of the questions you ask is what would I, what would I tell vet students? You know, the only way you're going to help your, your patients is by first caring for your mind and body and spirit and letting other people who love you support you. Mm. I, I want to dig deeper in that stuff that we covered before there. We, we talked about the competitiveness, but then also the... I'll say lack of self-worth or that I'm just not good enough. I don't, I, I don't trust myself. So is that, do you, is there a tie between that? Is that 
apparent competitiveness that we see, so whether it's competitiveness with yourself or with others in your team, does that come from that lack of, no, I don't think I'm good enough. So I don't feel like I'm good enough, so I don't know my stuff, so I've got to get better. I've got, got to get better. And then it shows itself almost as a defensiveness, uh, almost almost sometimes as an arrogance to saying, well, you can't question me, but it actually comes from a, I don't feel like I know my stuff. Is there a link between that? Exactly. It, yes, and this is what I just worked with. This I'm trying to get to these students younger and younger and younger to teach them about the imposter phenomenon and how it comes and goes and how it attacks people who are smart. And what happens is when we feel like this, if we keep it inside, if we press it down, that energy goes somewhere. It turns into illness, disease, missed work, yelling. It can look like defensiveness and being being rude with your staff. But what has to happen is talking about it, thinking out loud about it with your staff. You know, today this person came in. Did you notice this client who came in with this patient? And this is what happened. And this is how I was thinking about it. You know, what do, what do you do? When somebody comes in and questions your authority, somebody who came in and and has six pages of Google where they printed out their diagnosis of whatever it is, Mm. imposter phenomenon feeds on isolation. And so what I get people to do is to talk out loud and to talk with their staff, and especially women, Hugh, when they get talking, they have amazing revelations there's an unfolding that happens that brings clarity. But the pace of a veterinarian, of a veterinary nurse, is so intense that it's rare that anybody stops long enough to say, I need help. I'm struggling. So let's say somebody's listening to this and they, they're a team leader, a clinical manager or a clinic owner or something like that, and they say, oh, yeah, I see that in my staff. I see that in my team. I have nurse, nurse X and my new grad vet or something. They have that almost a prickliness that can look like, like I said, I've, I've seen this. The reason I'm asking is that that has been me, a team leader with somebody who go, you need to ask for help because you're acting like you know everything. But I know deep down it comes from, a, I feel like I don't know anything, so I have to fake it. How do you support? How do you provide that support or that opportunity to talk as a, as a team leader? Well, I get I get the person in front of me. I do a lot of work <laughs> via Zoom. But I get that person in front of me. I I watch their body language. I'm very, you know, as a special ed teacher, Hugh, I became a very good detective. And I can see facial expressions, I can see tics, not the kind that crawl on you and burrow into your skin, but the kind that you might have where your eye is twitching or your, um, you know, your mouth is wrinkled up. Or um, I watch for visible signs. I am honest. I am honest in the most loving way with the leadership. And then we start to pull in team leaders and then staff. And it becomes, it becomes a, a, it becomes a family from being these all these stepchildren living together in, in one room to becoming a family and to learning about the give and take and what that means. And sometimes it's hard lessons. It's this person is extremely toxic 
everybody knows who the toxic person is in the clinic or in the business. You all know. And yet nobody will fire them because everybody needs people. And the truth is I call BS on that and I say get rid of the toxicity and watch what will happen. Watch how people will open up and take a deep breath and you'll have fewer people out sick. I I think a takeaway for me from this conversation and many others I've had, because I, I had, I ran my own business as well, but to some degrees also don't think that you can do it all as the leader because the stuff you say that you are very good at picking up the subtleties and the body language and you you have a lot of experience. And somehow we think that, well, I'm a veterinarian. I've spent six years studying clinical vet stuff. And then I defaulted into being a people leader with zero skills and yet I think I need to be able to solve all these problems. Uh, whereas I'm, the odds are that I'm half emotionally deaf and mute myself. <laughs> and yeah, so often I think the solution is find some help. You can't do it all yourself. If you, have, if you have, not if you have, when you have these problem situations, which is inevitable for any time that you have a group of right. people together, there's help outside there and bring it in. Does that make sense? And that... Yes, and that, you know, Hugh, that stress and that pressure invariably comes home with your loved one. You know, my husband is very good at not unleashing when he comes home, and I know he he sees a lot during his day. But part of the, the, the loving, supportive relationships that are so vital in this industry, in this work, is for your, you know, for me as his wife or someone as a partner says, hey, I'm noticing that you are coming home and opening up a beer now and you don't just drink wine, you drink three. Or I'm noticing that you're coming in and you're you're yelling at the kids or you're mean to your own animals. Like something's going on, let's do something about it. And sometimes it does take the partner to set up the therapy the family time, the decompression, that opportunity for them to be a human outside of that work environment. If you ever get to the point where you're just two people living in the same space, parallel lives, you know, we all know when that happens. We can feel when that happens. That is a great sign that communication has to start and maybe some intervention is necessary. But sometimes it really is on people who love them the most to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Call you on your bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Been there. Been Which there. is hard because, hey, you, done you, it. because you want to you, – you, most people are, don't have your skills. Most vets or their partners don't have the skills that you have. So, A, you want to avoid conflict and you don't want to sound like the – the whingy partner, oh, you never do this and this, you come home grumpy. Uh, or or the flip side then, the defensiveness that you're likely to get. If, if I go, look, I'm noticing that that's three beers a night where it used to be one, and then the reaction is often going to be, hey, it's none of your business, just leave me alone. I've had a tough day, okay? Just just let me have my three yeah. beers. So how do you, how do you deal but with you that? But you know, th- that is, but this is what is so, this is what I think is so unique, you know, I was determined not to be that prototypical wife who supports her husband all through 
professional training and then he dumps me and runs off with a younger, prettier, you know, <laughs> great body. And and I was and in order to do that, I had to stay in front of him. And if if the defensiveness was there, you know, we continued to talk about it. We stayed in the same space. And I am a mover. I am not somebody who likes to sit down and have conversations. So we had to learn very early on, if we're going to have a conversation, I'm probably going to be cleaning the kitchen while you sit in front of me and have a meal. We had to make exceptions. Like, look, I don't cook. So if you're going to eat, you're going to have to make your own food. I'll bake bread all day long, but I do not cook. So my husband, you know, he used to be the cook before vet school. He made amazing meals. And that was something that we had to let go of for decades because of his intensive study and work. And we were okay with that. There were no expectations for me to be like that poster mom with the apron on. That was never going to happen. And so there are going to be these stressful times. And we've been through it all. You know, it's like we're in it for the long haul. It wasn't just four years. I have three children and said, look, your letters are running off your business card. No more degrees. No more children. We're done. And (laughs) if there's one takeaway from this podcast, it's it's no more degrees, no more children. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have more children than you have degrees. There you go. But there's a level of commitment, not only to each other but to the work. I believe in the work that my husband is doing. I believe in what he does and in in his intelligence and in his stamina and his dedication to teaching. He loves to teach. And I'll say, I think he's stuck with me all this time because he's learned a lot (laughs) about education and neurodiversity from me. He's a great teacher, because we suss out some of these problems that that he sees in the classroom. But mm-hmm. we're in it together. We we're, we love this profession as a team. And that there's something in that. There's something powerful in that. So let's say somebody's listening to this early on in their career. So pre pre the internship or maybe even just starting vet school. And they have a special relationship, whether married or not. It might not be the one yet, but if you think it is the one, how does the conversation look at the outset? How do you set things up right? Because it's like for you guys, did you have big conversations at the beginning or has it just been a work in progress of constant? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah there's the, there, and, and I'm going to say right off the bat, be careful about right and wrong, good and bad. What, what we know is that we make decisions to the best of our abilities in the moment with the information we have, with the person in front of us, the person you love. And everything that you believe is all the things you believe are going to happen are probably going to be flipped upside down. This is not for the weak of heart, but If you're going to do it, and you will do it if you're committed to it, it's about communicating every step of the way. This is working. This is not working. 
This is a possibility. What are we going to do? I mean, really, when it comes to that internship and residency, what are we going to do if it's A, B, C, or D? What does that look like? Who are our support systems? You know, we knew no one when we went to vet school. We knew even fewer people when we moved to Michigan. But the beautiful thing about that move is that my family was closer in Michigan than they had ever been in our relationship. So I would say Mm -hmm. communicate, set out your options, never put your eggs in one basket, and have support systems wherever you go. How do you find the support systems? Because you're right, that is a big issue. I've experienced that several times because I've moved from South Africa to the UK, UK to Australia, West Coast, East Coast. And every time that disruption of the support system, I, I feel it. I have this, I, I have a, um, a way that I, after our most recent move, where we'd been in one place for about 12 years, and I thought the move wasn't going to be a, that disruptive because it was still within Australia. But I said to a friend the other day, I feel like a, like if you have a pot plant that's well established in its pot, but it's outgrown the pot, and then you repot it into a bigger pot, but even in that repotting, there's some root damage, so there's a little bit of wilting, a little bit of blah afterwards. It's I feel like it's those support systems that that's that that gets disrupted, that doesn't provide the nutrients for that plant to thrive. How do we reestablish that's those right. roots? Have you got techniques or tips or, or finding have those I support got to- systems? <laughs> Of course, of course I do. And yes, moves are one of the, they're, they're like in the top three most stressful things you can do is move. We've moved nine times. So when that happens and, and you get your bearings once you're where you are, you know, the pandemic has changed things in that realm. We are now more connected than ever. We all have made a friend somewhere out there that we've never met in person. And so we have links in our chain that are so populated with people who we've met over the last several years through this medium. And so Mm -hmm. there's no reason to not reach out. And I'm a believer that if you want something, instead of saying, I wish there was this, or I'm complaining about anything in your environment, you go out and you create it. If you want to have, if you miss your social circle, you get out there and you create one. You open your house up and have a potluck. You go to, a, um, you know, the art studio because you love art and you start to talk to people. Hi, we just moved here. I've got three kids. Where, you know, tell me about the schools, about the camps, about the YMCA. The thing about learning and being a part of a new community you is the first thing we have to do is learn the language we have to learn the vocabulary associated with where we are and what we're doing now and so you get out and you talk to people and you ask questions and you live like your life depends on the questions you're asking because it does and the older I get and the longer I live I recognize just how short of a time we have and we don't have time for the BS or worrying about what other people think. You get out and you make the connections. You hit the pavement. You make the phone calls. You make yourself seen, which I know is very scary. But mm-hmm. you be who you want to see in the world, you know? Be that person. That's great. And you will attract those people to you. 
It's great advice. It is great advice, but it is hard, as you say, especially for a bunch of people who have those invisible disabilities. That makes it harder for us to to do that stuff. Absolutely. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Um, Can I backtrack to some of your work with something you, you mentioned right at the beginning? And it's not what I plan to discuss, but I think it's so important where you talked about because you you your coaching work and your support work it's not just vet you also do other health prof- professions and all sorts of other professions and, and it, it struck me that you said the way that our clients sometimes treat us is unique to us and a why does that happen do you have any inkling of why clients are rooted to us and then what you said there you mentioned not allowing that because you said, yes, it's for the clinic owners can fire clients in that. But it's very often, A, the clinic owner doesn't support that or they're not involved or, or there's situations in the moment where it is the receptionist at the front desk, the nurse out the back or the veterinary, veterinarian, not the owner in the consult room who gets treated in a way that they're not happy with. How do we respond to that? How, how do we disallow that without being rude? You know, with eh, sometimes you have to be rude, but yeah, what's a good strategy for that but first of all where does it come from why why do they why do we get that the blunt end of the sharp end of the stick actually it's because when people come to you they're not in their frontal lobe (laughs) people are not operating Mm. in their in their frontal lobe when they come to you their executive functioning skills are in the toilet so they're back in their limbic brain they're emotional they're concerned about something that they love so passionately and they're coming in hot and I think that we don't teach people how to deal with people in crisis. You know, people on the phone don't know how to deal with people in crisis. And your clients are often, unless they're puppy visits, well child visits, yes, my, look, it's, everybody's healthy and happy. That's great. But that's not the majority mm-hmm. of who you see. We are very visual beings. We need to see things. We need to tap into our senses. And I am continually amazed when I go into clinics at, at how sterile or how dead they are. When we bring people in in crisis, they need signage. You are about to come into a space that's peaceful and helpful. Please respond accordingly. Or even smile. You're on camera. <laughs> We've got video cameras on you. We are here to help. Please be kind. Speak in a tone that is respectful to the other people in the waiting room. Put up signage for one. Secondly, you teach your frontline people how to respond to people in crisis. And if somebody comes in hot, you can say, I am here to help. And when you are talking to me like that, I am unable to help you. I've got options. You can go into this space over here that we have. This is a calming room and take five minutes. Or you can take a deep breath and start over. But most of our frontline people either don't have that language or they're terrified. They don't believe that they can speak to a client like that. I teach people that they can. Mm. But if you think about what you know, what you want to create, it's a space where you hear things, you see things, you smell things that calm you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it it does. It takes I think it comes with experience as well. It happens to you a few times and then you go, Oh, that's enough. Because I, I remember 
situations where only later in my career, I, I, there's a specific instance where I was at the clinic alone. I was working after hours and somebody rang the doorbell and immediately on the intercom, they were swearing at me. So open the effing door. Blah, 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 blah. And even on the in, intercom, I, I, I went, it's like at three in the morning. You're driving me insane. And I know you're, you're, I didn't say this. I was thinking this, but then saying to them on the intercom, listen, there is another emergency clinic 10 minutes up the road. If you're going to speak to me in that disrespectful way, then I'd rather you go there. If you can't change your tone of voice, then I'm not going to come open up. I don't know. Is that is that correct? Is that too crude or too too rude? Because it worked. He, went, he piped right down. He's like, sorry, I'm very stressed. And I opened up and we were fine. But it was literally just drawing the line saying, actually, it's not cool. Yes. I understand that you're upset, right. but I'm not going to tolerate it. Correct. Okay. And... As an owner of a practice, you may feel more confident doing that, but I'm telling you every single front desk, vet nurse, vet tech, and practitioner you have in that hospital needs to be able to have the confidence and the permission to do the exact same thing. I, I had this idea once, how do you make this practical? Because it's also hard, and I understand if I'm a, and I don't think I would have had the courage to do that as a 22-year-old new graduate to stand up to a 50-year-old male owner who's angry to, to draw that line there. I thought, how do we make it easier? And I, I have this idea of, I don't know if you, what sports you guys support, but in soccer or rugby or the things that I watch, you have the card system, the yellow card and the red card. I, I, you should have a sign behind reception that says, green card means everything's good, yellow card means watch your tone, red means you're out, get off the field. And you have cards at the front desk where if somebody is rude, you, just, you card them. Yellow card, go sit in the corner, come back, 10 minutes out, and then you can have another go. Or if it's too rude, just get out. Red card. I love it. <laughs> brilliant. That's brilliant. Because I don't have to say anything. <laughs> That's right. I love it. And people respond to color. And if you think about it, my car will flash a green car symbol if the traffic is moving. It will do a yellow one if it's congested. And if people walk into a clinic that is filled, it's a busy day. It's like when the airplane people say that we have a full flight today, so let's side check your luggage here. People coming in can see this is a full waiting room. It's it's yellow or it's red. Please act accordingly. Be respectful yeah. to other people in the you know. I mean, we we need those visual cues, especially after the pandemic. We're still learning relearning how to treat one another when we're face to face. Yeah. So should we, should we start wrapping up? Cause I've kept you busy for over an hour already. This is so lovely. Um, let's wrap up again with just going back to the relationship between vet non non vet. Uh, and should we finish it up with saying, I'd love to know, let's say one of your kids starts dating and gets serious with somebody who's studying to be a vet, what do you say to them? <laughs> so what, what do you say to them? Watch out for these things. Or what are the joys? Like, fantastic. Here, here's the stuff that's going to be really good, potentially. But there's mom's advice that you're not going to listen to because I'm your mom and kids never listen to their moms. But anyway, let's give it a try. <laughs> mm. You know you know what? It's, it's really that I will liken it to this, Hugh. When I was going to be married to my husband, and I did say we're interracial, and in fact, I will say my husband was the first African-American male to graduate from the University of Wisconsin 
Madison. And guess what the year was? 2000. 2000. So when I was going to get, yeah, when I was going to get married, I know, I know, doesn't it? When I mean, I want to just shake people. And that's, that's one of the reasons why he works so hard and so diligently Mm -hmm. to, in the DEI space and in the, he, he does such great work. But my father initially refused to walk me down the aisle because he was concerned about our children. That's what he said. He was concerned about our children, even though we were just going to get married. And the reality is our relationship has only ever struggled with the everyday normal relationship struggles. Children, finance, addictions, illness, cancer, moves, deaths of our parents. Grand- I mean, you name it, in a, in a normal life, these are the struggles we had. It wasn't the interracialness of our relationship. And I would say, you know, if one of my kids was going to date uh, uh, somebody going into vet med, they've got some pretty great examples and role models in their father and me. You know, if you have examples, no matter where, in your family of origin or in your colleagues or in your mentors or in your friend groups, if you've got examples of good communication, loving, supportive relationships, people who continue to work on themselves, because like you said, most veteran, veterinarians I know are with people who are also strong, motivated, goal-oriented. They are succeeding in life at whatever they're doing. You all don't marry twits. We work together to continually move forward. And that's painful at times, and it's joyous at times. And I think my husband and I both want to leave the world better than we found it. And we've done that with our children, and we've also done that in the work, because we continue to lift people up, to educate them, to help them move forward, despite their challenges, and trust themselves to do the work that they know that they can do. If you're called to do something... You are capable, out of the gate. You were not into construction. You weren't called to be a construction worker. That wasn't like the thing you loved to do when maybe it was when you grew up. I wasn't going to be an accountant. We are capable in our passions. It's interesting that you say that the, so none of the struggles, personal and relational and everything else was really vet related. Because I, I, and this is a podcast for vets, so we talk about vet specific problems. But I do sometimes feel like, as a profession, we are very good at saying, "Oh, it's so hard for us and our profession this and this and this and this." But you also coach other professions, and it sounds like there's nothing you, that makes it uniquely. Well, they are like, let's rephrase that as a question: Are there things that makes the veterinary thing uniquely challenging compared to some of the other professions, and specifically the healthcare professions that you coach? I think when you're in the business of saving lives, you believe that you are always wearing that cape. You are always saving lives. And I think the the biggest challenge in healthcare is boundary setting, is turning it off, is saying, this is where I stop working, sending texts, you know, and this is the, this is the dichotomy right now, is that one of the, one of the, key components of what 
veterinary schools are expected to teach is wellness. And yet the very people who are teaching the students are working an inordinate amount of hours. They come in before the students arrive. They leave after they go home. They're answering emails and texts in the middle of the night. And that is a conversation that I have had all through this relationship with my husband because he's been doing this longer than he hasn't. We've been together longer, you know, more than we haven't been together. And that is a that is one of the repeated conversations. Set boundaries. Say no. And you can imagine as an African American male, he is asked to be on every diversity committee every committee that has to see, uh, you know, a dispute because they need diversity. And so learning how to say no and say, you know what, I, I can have a life because you are responsible for your wellness and the students coming out of school know to expect that from their employers. And, and I looked at that question about the gap between wanting to Make more money and work less. Mm. And I so let's let's do that. So so the past alone. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll segue <laughs> into that. So you keep you're skipping ahead. Come on, <laughs> um, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I've just got to frame it, and I'd love you to hear your answer because I think it's a big question. I feel it's a bit unfair. But our previous guest asked. I should ask the next guest. How do you solve the gap between vets wanting more, so more money? Uh, but also wanting to do less work, which I think is fair. I think that's a, one of the solutions for more balance. But uh, have you got any insight on that? First of all, ridiculous question. We're gonna we're gonna chop it right in half. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna <laughs> chop it in half, and we're gonna we're gonna make it two questions. Because as a spouse of a veterinarian, hell yes, I want him to work less because he has done this work for so long, and he ought to be making more money. Absolutely. But there is no gap. So we're going to cut out the gap part and we're going to say vets want more money because they deserve more money. They're coming out of school in six-figure debt. The market is now paying more to veterinarians because that, that is what COVID has done. And students are coming out expecting to make more, as they should. The role mm-hmm. of veterinarian is evolving Telehealth has brought a whole new arm into human and animal medicine. So they are expected to do more, know more, balance, uh, juggle more. I don't like the word balance. So the work is evolving. There are higher expectations. Vets are not whiners. I have never met a veterinarian who doesn't work so hard and believe in what he and she, they, whatever they do. They are hard workers. They don't complain about things. They are doing the work. So the second part of that, working less work, that's so funny. No. What they're doing is they're coming out of unreasonable expectations in their training into reasonable expectations in their employment. And absolutely, because they are being taught, like I said, this wellness component in order for vet schools to be accredited, they have to show that one of the competencies that they're teaching is wellness, how to advocate for yourself, how to negotiate a contract, how to speak up, 
how to walk away from a position that's toxic. And what we want is we want veterinarians who are happy and healthy and strong, not suiciding and leaving the profession and becoming so unhappy that it's ruining relationships and practices and that it's that it's wrecking humans. We want them to know how to take care of themselves. So yes, I ask my clients for more money every year I do this work. Why? Because I invest thousands in my work, in myself, in my education. You know veterinarians do too. We are always learning and bettering ourselves. And the more experience, you get the job done. You get the job done faster. You know more. You're more confident. So, yeah, I think veterinarians ought to make more money. And I don't think it's about less work. I think it's about more reasonable work expectations. Yeah, I like that a lot. I heard a comment once from a, an owner of a big rent group where they were instituting a wellness program. And some of the leadership had some resistance, not resistance, but they were curious about what it's going to look like. And when they were told what it was going to look like, they said, yeah, that's great. I like these things. As long as it's not just how do we earn more for working less. And a part of me went, yeah, I think that's the first component is how do we make it more sustainable? Because that is it. That is, if, if I earn a bit more, I don't have to do all the overtime hours I can have a life outside of it. So I, I did stick with me a little bit to go, well, I think that's probably step one is to m make sure that it is a more sustainable career. And that in involves money and time off. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I, I do want to underline what you said before, the people who teach wellness. That's a, a light bulb for me. If you want to teach wellness, live wellness, model it, because otherwise it's empty. Empty words. Absolutely. This is how yeah. we align. This is this is how I wake up every day and do my work. It's because I practice what it is that I share in the world. If I'm not practicing it, I don't teach it. I'm not out there trying to teach people yoga. I don't practice yoga. <laughs> but I do practice Qigong, and I teach people that all the time. What's Qigong? Qigong is energy work. So it's movement and breath. It's a little bit like Tai Chi, but a little bit less uh -huh. strenuous. Yeah, I'll send nice. you a link. It's really cool. It's a great transitional exercise for in between transitioning from one thing into the next. All righty. Are you a podcast listener at all, Regina? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Audible absolutely saved my life. I never used to read until Audible. And... I do love uh, We Can Do Hard Things with Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach because I think they're pretty cool. I love The Hidden Brain. It's an NPR mm -hmm. podcast, you know. Yep. I've learned yep. very cool things on that. So those two I would recommend. I'm a big fan of Glennon Doyle, but I've not come across We Can Do Hard Things. Give us a quick summary. Oh, my goodness. I mean, she, she hits all sorts of things. She just interviewed Brene Brown. She had the Nagoski sisters on the stress cycle. Oh. If you haven't read that book by the Nagoski, the Nagoski sisters, Burnout, oh, so good. It talks about okay. completing the stress cycle, you know, like after you, you've seen dogs, you know, shake off after they've come in contact with another dog. That's what they talk about, things like that. Um, they talk about neurodiversity. 
basically anything that Glennon has, has lived in her life based on her book, Untamed, they address it in the podcast. It's really good. Okay. All right. And then our final question. You have the opportunity to address all the veterinary new grads of the world. I should change that question because as the podcast grows, I do realize that you, I can reframe it to say you have the opportunity to speak to two to 3,000 veterinarians, which you do right now. And you have to give them one little bit of advice. What is your takeaway if we haven't already covered it? You know, um, I know there's a question that I'm supposed to ask the next guest, and it sort of aligns ah. with what I would say to to the people, okay? Because what I know, and I, I have inquired with many, many vets, <laughs> what I find is that you all rarely spend time by yourself. So the question is, what do you think about most when you're by yourself? And you're not doing that enough. And I'll go back to the statement that the only way you can truly help your patients is by caring first for your mind and body and spirit. And because we're talking about support from your loved ones, learning the give and take. Giving doesn't work without receiving. And so knowing what it is you need requires you to stop and spend time by yourself. Listen to your body. Mm -hmm. It never lies. The body never lies. But the only time that we can really tune in is if we stop and spend time with ourselves. I like that a lot. Regina, that was lovely. I really enjoy that. There's a lot in there. We could do this for days. Um, I'm going to have to dig into your resources. For anybody else who wants to dig into Regina's resources or maybe get in touch, where do we find you? Where do we find your stuff? My most favorite place to hang out and play is on LinkedIn. So look me up on LinkedIn, Regina Carey. I am known as the queen of action, Hugh. So if anybody wants to jump on my calendar for 15 minutes, go to queenofaction.com and and let's get face-to-face because I have been known to flip your worldview upside down in 15 minutes or less. Queen of action. How I do you get my, that title? The queen of action, yeah. <laughs> I... I gave it to myself because it's all about, I'm all about taking action on your life. Great. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. And I really look forward to connecting. Thank you. Before you disappear, I wanted to tell you about our new weekly newsletter. I speak to so many interesting people and learn so many new things while making the podcast. So I thought I'd create a little summary each week of the stuff that stood out for me. We call it the VetVault 321 and it consists of, firstly, three clinical pearls. These are three things that I've taken away from the clinical podcast episodes. My light bulb moments, the penny dropping, any new facts and the stuff that we need to know to make all the other pieces fit. Then, two other things. These could be quotes, links, movies, books, a podcast highlight, anything that I've come across outside of clinical vetting that I think you might find interesting. And then one thing to think about. I'll share something that I'm pondering, usually based on something that I've read or heard, but sometimes it'll be just my own musings or rants. The goal of this format is that you can spend just two to three minutes on the clinical stuff and move right along if that's all that you're after. 
But if you're looking for content that is more nourishing than cat videos or doom scrolling, then our two other things should send you in the right direction. And then something extra for when you feel like a slightly longer read. If you'd like to get these in your inbox each week, then subscribe by following the newsletter link in the show description wherever you're listening to this. It's free, I think it's useful, it's fun, and it's easy to unsubscribe if it's not for you. Okay, I'll see you next time.